Welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. There's a general feeling in hospitality that when an independent restaurant is successful and starts replicating itself, it is in danger of losing its soul, especially when it reaches around 20 sites. And that's why I was keen to chat to this week's guests, the co-founders of Honest Burgers, Tom Barton and Philip Eels. I'd heard a few times that they are living proof that this compromise doesn't have to be the case. Now, regular listeners will know that I'm very passionate about the little guy and the humans rather than the brands of hospitality. So with 36 venues and a team of 777 people, Honest Burgers are, in terms of numbers, a chain. But I wanted to find out how they absolutely and genuinely don't act like one. Have they found the utopia of the benefits rather than the disbenefits of scale? Now, what was apparent from our very wide-ranging conversation is that they are obsessive about the details and still refuse to compromise. They still make all their own chips and wouldn't give a frozen version the time of day, and they also have their own butchery, which produces chopped, not minced beef, to deliver the satisfying texture that fine, medium-rare burgers deserve. And they encourage the managers of each venue to go out and discover independent food and drink producers to collaborate with at a local level. As you listen, you'll hear many more examples of how to grow a company and remain true to your principles. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Okay, Tom and Phil from Honest Burgers, thank you so much for uh, sparing the time. Very excited to come and chat with you uh, about your journey over the last few years. Um, Phil, can I just ask, where on planet Earth are we, please? Do you mind just setting the scene? Uh, we're in what we colloquially call the fish bowl, which is our, sorry, excuse for a boardroom in our office in Borough, near Borough, just nice. off Southwark Street. Yeah, yeah just in uh, in the great city. Uh, I've sat in many uh, worse places, little cupboards and packing rooms and all sorts of places. Very rarely is money spent back a house. This is quite nice. You've got like a door and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We've got yeah. doors, yeah. Windows. Yeah, you're, 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 you're quite light. light. Yeah. This, nice. is a, this is a vast improvement of what it was a few uh, a few months ago. Yeah. Well, weeks ago, even I think. Yeah, we had a big, a big like crisis talk. Sort out our head office. There's people. It's just a dumping ground. Right. So it's a bit better now, but we've got we've got big plans for the future. Hopefully, we might we might go into later. Okay, great. You didn't do this one for about twenty quid as well, because what's blown me away most about researching your story in the last twenty four hours is is the fact that you managed to open a restaurant for seven and a half grand, uh, which we're going to come to. But yeah. um, what was this? Yeah, did you did you do it all yourselves? I was even listening well, to you. I think about- actually, you know, the the mindset when we took this office on was still the mindset of the seven and a half grand. You know, right. you know, do it as everything has to be. You know, sheep's possible, forget about that. It's all mm. about the restaurant, it's all about customer, it's all about that. That was what we we're focusing on, which is was what we needed at the time. But now you're a bigger company, you need to start investing in, in everything. Yeah, you can't just you can't just close the door on some things. Um so yeah, there's a there's a big kind of topic to to take on. 
Chokey, mm-hmm. meaty start. That start time. with that. <laughs> yeah. straight, in with, uh, straight in with a challenge. No, no, I think I've just come from a big meeting with our project <laughs> manager talking about how we're going to to change change everything up. So okay. yeah, that's why yeah. I'm, I'm but, in that but, zone. But it's true. Statement. It's really no. It really is true. Actually, when we did our little central sport, like let's have it out about the office, kind of, I sort of made an apology really because I think, like Tom says, there's a bit of an overhang of us. Roll your sleeves up, get on with it. You're like the important ones are out in the restaurant. You guys are just here in the office, and and it's you know it's not fit for purpose anymore. We're mm. not just three or four members of staff. We're I think it's usual mm. to be fair in, in in hospitality specifically. Is you know all of the cash, especially in the early days, goes front of house. But I always think you can probably and this isn't you know meant reference to this because I say I've done these in in cupboards where people haven't spent the money. But it's certainly in the restaurants. I always you know I judge a place almost by how smart back a house is because if you go behind the scenes in restaurants and bars and it's clean and it's tidy and it's well organised, then you can kind of go okay, great. You know they actually it's genuinely that care. I think completely so, agree. I think the organization and and standards they, they're everywhere and it shouldn't just be you know a, a shiny front of house and then a, a terrible yeah. back of house and then this is i guess we'd seen this as back of house and less important um and now we've got you know 20 odd people that call this um home sort of monday to friday yeah so you've got to set a sign. There is a sign. I did yeah. see as soon as I walked in, underlined on the wall, it does say office makes me <laughs> ill on the whiteboard. Uh, yeah. Was that the topic of the last meeting? Was I, I, was, it really was. Was there the plague in here? Or it was, was it just the fact that you should all be working with the cold venues? in there, so yeah, it's probably... <laughs> It's it's just, yeah, look, AC and temp has been... Uh, what, what we did, I mean, we were really fixating on this office. Yeah. <laughs> what we actually did is our head of people got everyone outside the office, all like everyone in central support, so 40 to 50 people, and she gave them red post-it notes and yellow post-it notes, and everyone had to go in in teams and just anything they thought just shouldn't fucking be here. Oh, there's one. <laughs> uh, you, put a, you, put, you put a red post-it on, right. or, and if you like it, part of the office put a yellow post-it on, okay. and it was just a sea it of was red. Like did thousands you- of posts. Did either of you end up with a red post-it note on you, or were you? I did actually. So did you? Yeah. I think Chris put one on me. Chris put one on the door. Yeah. My bike, my bike, the aforementioned bike that yeah. you noticed that hasn't been used that for about six months got peppered with red. Yeah. Really? But it's yeah. still here. As a you, I'm close to just leaving it outside for some. I've got another meeting. I could borrow it from the afternoon. And seriously, he wouldn't. He wouldn't notice for a couple of years. I don't think. Well, I feel already. I said an hour, but maybe three hours because we've gone off on quite a So bringing it back in and, and I'm looking forward to, to darting around your your history a little bit but just to put it in context for, for people who don't know uh, Honest and um, Tom I'll start with you can you just give us a bit of a, a bit of a background how many venues have you got what cities are you in um, so we are uh, national um, started in London we've got the majority <coughs> in London we've got 36 um, which is including like a Deliveroo um, kind of dark kitchen okay we've got a prep kitchen we've got a head office um We've got we've got this thing on Workplace, uh, which is our kind of internal comms system, which is basically sort of it's owned by Facebook. It's a um, it's a good sort of mark on how many people are working for us now. And I checked this morning, and it's seven hundred and seventy-seven. Wow! Wow! Um, are actually are on are on our Team Honest group. It's a nice um, round number. Can you keep seven seven seven? Yeah. I think that's <laughs> I mean, if you were in China, it'd be lucky if it was eight eight eight. Yeah, yeah. That feels like a nice seven is a lucky there. number actually. Yeah, is so it? That's, Wow, it's a good number. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, we we got our own butchery, we've got our own prep kitchen. Um, I'm massively bragging now. Yeah, no, 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 that's good. It, it just yeah. gives a little a little bit of, of context and um, and it's, you know background to this pre this. What uh, what hospitality experiences do you had? 
uh, before we get into the kind of festival side of the business, Phil, where I'll come back to you. So for me, it was a, I just had, I kind of gone into hospitality as a bit of a, a bit of fun. Uh, for, I think on my first job, 14, I was a glass collector at our local pub um, and just thought it was quite good fun. You know, my, my parents pushed me into it because it's great. I think, I think every kid should do um, a bit of work in, in hospitality because it just gives you a bit of confidence, doesn't it? And chatting to strangers and grown-ups and walking around. So I did that and then went to uni in Brighton, needed some money. So I worked through uni. So I worked in bars and clubs and restaurants, never in the kitchen side of things, weirdly. It was always front of house. And then actually met Phil working in the restaurant um, that kind of changed my life, really, that restaurant, Real and Fins. Um, I met my wife there. I met Phil there. Um, who is more important? You're two of your favourite humans. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I just gonna, you've yeah. given me the sort of knowing wink of knowing who it is. Well, he can't say it. He obvious. can't say it on the podcast. Obviously, obviously not. But I think it's obvious his wife to everyone. What is your wife's name? Yeah. Uh, she's called Connie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And similar to you, Phil, you you were clearly if you met in a restaurant and did you? Did yeah, you yeah, yeah very similar. That? I don't know. Is it, maybe this is a bit generalistic, but you don't. As, when, as a kid, you sort of when you need a part-time job, you either end up in a shop, temping in an office, or you end up in a restaurant or a bar, don't you? And I was always. Found myself in restaurants. My first job was, I think I was 17. I worked in Ravenwood Hall, <laughs> Country Manor, back in Suffolk. Right? Bowtie? Bowtie. Yeah. Yeah. Always front of house as well? Or ever in Always front of house, Always yeah. House. yeah. Okay. Silver service. Silver service, yeah. Dreary. So it was like, you know, we had to go, it was Sunday lunch, you used to go over with like a platter as long as your arm full of vegetables and give it to people with a spoon and a fork, wow. which yeah. with no for some reason that's really good <laughs> service. I, I never understood it then. I certainly don't understand it now. But yeah, would you like a carrot, sir? And I'll sort of try and pincer it between these it. cutlery and I'll put it on your plate for you. Yeah, why is it a spoon and a fork and not just a pair of tongs? Like, I, remember being, so, I remember literally, like, when I learned how to do it, it was like a big deal. Yeah. I, I swear, like, you asked my brother, my mother, that Christmas I made everyone <laughs> silver serve. Everyone thought that was really cool. I was like, look what I can do. And I was like silver serving the roast potatoes right. at Christmas to all my family. Did they like, feel equally as uncomfortable? And, yeah, uh, I mean, what a waste. Why is did that, you why is that good service? Then? You know, but we'll, we'll probably come on to how I feel about hospitality, certainly in the burger sector. I'm not saying country house is the same as our burger restaurants, but it's funny what we think silver service is like. Yeah. I did the um, I did the same. I worked in a Mission Star restaurant hotel in, in Bath with the Priory. And I learned a lot of technical, you know, kind of the, the kind of do's and don'ts and how you serve from the, the right kind of side of someone and afternoon tea and stuff. But, but yeah, it wasn't like, it wasn't an enjoyable place to work at all. It was really strict. And, you know, you, we were wearing white shirt, waistcoat, bow tie, and it could be 50 degrees in the kitchen, even more on a, <laughs> on a summer's day. And you were literally yeah. like drenched in sweat. You didn't look good, yeah. but you were in a bow tie. And it was like, that's, that was enough for you. Yeah. And yeah. apparently that's what I wanted. But it's, it's funny that my think as kids, you know, I remember, you know, my parents going out for a meal was a big deal and they'd go, you know, maybe three or four times a year. So I guess yeah. the shift has been to this whole boom in casual dining and in hospitality has yeah. kind of been binning all of that and basically making it feel comfortable, isn't it? Because if you were going to do that, you, you didn't really relax. It felt like a big deal and you need, always need yeah. to put a tie on. Yeah, to go out for well, dinner, right. if going out for dinner felt like, you know, a real event, didn't it? And I think particularly in this city now, like it's just 
Should we go for a burger? Yeah. 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, why not? It's a catch up, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty yeah. fun. I just remembered there was a harpist in the corner of that <laughs> wow, restaurant. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. On a Sunday, you'd get a harpist. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, still, they still exist. They're still out there. But, every good uh, restaurant needs a harpist. Stuff it is. Oh, of course. Stuff I presume you have one in every honest. <laughs> um, and then, so you were, you were working for other people. Yeah. Um, you'd had this idea kicking around that you wanted to potentially be self-employed. And then uh, I was watching uh, a video where Tom mentioned that you were on a ski lift and had an epiphany. Oh, uh, is, that, is, that, is that true? And I'd like to hear the story from you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, what, what, why on earth were you uh, thinking of Tom on a ski lift? Doing some soul <laughs> or, were you thinking, or were you hungry? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, well, we'll, yeah, where are we? We're at 2009 at this point, and we worked together in Rhythm Fins joked about doing something and I mean like really like haha why don't we do something at the festival no 2007 no okay yeah yeah we joked about doing something you know let's do a stand let's do festivals blah 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 huh? wouldn't it be funny we could do it you know um but I was trying to be a journalist at the time that's why I was actually in Brighton I'd finished my degree in Canterbury and I'd gone down to Brighton to do like the NCTJ postgrad thing. So I was. Yeah, philosophy degree. Did, did a philosophy degree, which I absolutely loved. <laughs> I recommend it to anyone. But um, that, that sounded like I was being sarcastic. I'm actually serious. <laughs> it's an amazing thing to do. Um, anyway, where was I? Yeah, then uh, the journalism thing wasn't really happening. Bit of a sliding doors moment. I did a. I was doing part time stuff and work experience, blah, blah. And I went to a sports agency which I, I wanted to be a sports writer. Did two weeks there. They were really happy. I was really happy. Uh, about a week later, they called me up and said, look, we need someone to go to the Sunday people on Saturday to help write the sport pages. Will you, can you do it? And I couldn't, it was, this was on like the Friday, so super short notice. I couldn't get the manager of Ridland Fins where we worked to give me the day off. I was maybe on a double shift on the Saturday. And like a very good, diligent, hardworking young chap that I was, I was like, okay, no worries, yeah. Okay, thank, no, thanks for trying. So I called up the uh, agency and said, look, I can't do this one, but, you know, keep me in mind for the next one. Of course, never heard from them again. Um, and that kind of began my spiral out of journalism and into restaurants. And I've always enjoyed restaurants. And, um, but, yeah, I kind of, I think I was 27 now. I was like, what am I actually doing here? And I'm sure a lot of your listeners in the similar age are perhaps feeling the same. Uh, well, we've done a couple of ski seasons before, so I was like, sod it, I'm going to go off to the mountains for six months. Got myself a job over there. Uh, doing some sort of low-level ski instructing, beginner kind of English school groups, and just found myself sat on a lot of windy chairlifts with a bunch of kids that would have, didn't really want to be there. And I thought, shit, what am I going to do when I get back to the UK? And that's when Mr Barton popped into my head. Rather than a kindergarten, you thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I thought, actually, you know, let's just, fuck it, why not? Let's go back and I'm going to give him a call. And you'd left Riddle and Fins by this point. Like, we were still in touch. We weren't, like, best mates or anything, but... Um, I thought, no, do you know what? Why not? Nothing to lose. Let's go with it. And I kind of reconciled myself. Both of my parents were teachers, so I was like, if this doesn't work, I'll go and be a teacher. I've always felt like it's a bit of a backup. Okay. <laughs> I could be a teacher. I think I, could, I think I could be a decent teacher. I understand that. I understand that world. I grew up with teachers. So, yeah, I thought, that's my backup. I'll give Tom a call when I get back in April. And... That's what we did. Okay. So you didn't so. loathe the kids that you were sharing a chairlift with, with enough to put you off teaching for life, at least. No, but, no, uh, I, I try love, something else. I love, I love skiing. I've done ski seasons like a lot of people do ski seasons, which is work in a hotel, clean a few toilets, go skiing all day, get wrecked in the evening, do it again for twenty weeks in a row. But this one was a bit more serious. I actually, had to ski every day, which sounds amazing for those of your <laughs> listeners who like skiing. But actually, 
Sometimes you don't want to ski. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes the kids don't want to ski. Yeah. So it was quite, yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. But yeah. no, I, I came back very much invigorated that, do you know what, I'm going to give Tom a call with, let's give that thing a go. So. Okay. And the, and the first incarnation of this then was into the more the festival side of it. So this wasn't let's open a restaurant, it was yeah, let's I mean, look, sell food. To be super clear, I mean, there's not even a bit of us, even after probably six months of doing the street food thing, that we actually ever thought we'd have a restaurant, right? We didn't. Yeah, I never, never even, even dreamed that we get to restaurant level. I was like, this is this be a bit of fun. Why not? Let's have a go, and we'll we'll try and change the festival burger, um, which you know is is crap. Yeah, it's thin, over minced, grey, tasteless kind of scrape off the bottom of the floor meat, and then you get charged ten pound for it. Yeah. So we were like, we can change all that. Um, Okay, and you were doing it, Tom. You were doing this in, in not in Big Plus. I, I, I mentioned um, Phil and Flower earlier, who I interviewed uh, a few weeks ago. They yeah. were the, uh, the meat delivery guys, and uh, they talked about trying to get in onto some of the gigs like Glastonbury, which I think they did actually do. And they did the uh, they did the V Festival actually cooking for Richard Branson VIP kind of style once. But the amount of money involved in the big festivals—it was something like twenty-eight thousand pounds or something—just yeah, just yeah. to get in on the, on the first that one. That was our biggest um, kind of. First bit of bad planning, I'd say, when we, we yeah, decided so to go into the yeah. We had this bit of cash. We had um, two and a half grand each yeah. that we put in together. Um, we spent like, half of that on a marquee. Honestly, that was my... I don't know what I was thinking. I just felt <laughs> yeah. like we needed to invest in the, in the foundation. Well, to be fair, it was a joint decision. It's a good marquee. still got it? Yeah, yeah, we do, yeah. And it, it's been through some some batterings. Yeah. Like, we, we did Festival Number 6 a few years ago. And I'm not joking, the the, the entire um, staff campsite got evacuated because I was up there when it was like the gale force winds, tents were literally flying off into the ozone, just disappearing. <laughs> and I went back there and it was like, it was like, yeah, mate, it was hilarious. And then I went back in the morning and it was carnage and the only thing that was standing was our marquee in the yeah. Yeah. did you feel like, did you like, get a photo that's what happens yes. when you spend two and a half thousand pounds yeah, exactly. on so, um, buy once buy well you know yeah, don't, yeah. Uh, so don't we, get that throwaway stuff so we bought this <laughs> bought this marquee um, and thought yeah let's, like Phil said let's do the festival burger because that's all we we don't need to invest loads of cash we've got a grill we've got a fry we've got all this passion we've got an idea what we want it to be we've never tried what we think a really great burger is um in a in a restaurant or in a in a, a festival setting or anywhere really, so we thought this you know this could work, and then we just started trying to book <laughs> some <laughs> festival events. Yeah. And we were like, yeah, can we come along and you know do it? And they were like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Just give me ten grand. Yeah, just uh, for the pitch. We were like, <laughs> okay, yeah. but yeah, we did all these things, and then and then we were like, look, we can't afford to do any of the big events. Even if we could afford to do the big events, we can't afford to buy the food. That's, the, big, the, that's the biggest thing. Like, it's all well and good getting into Glastonbury. To make any money, you need about £30,000 worth of stock. Yeah, you've got yeah. like shipping containers of, you know, refrigerated shipping containers. You've got to hire that. You've got all this infrastructure that we just had not thought through. We were like, right, it's we're definitely... It's business, isn't it? Yeah, it's big and it's risky because, you know, we did festival number six, lost tons of money because it was an absolute washout. Yeah, no one left by Sunday. You know, you've just got to bite that I, if yeah. it happens. I think you've got to you've got to average it out over sort of, you know, four or five years. Yeah. Knowing you'll get a couple of good ones and a couple yeah, of crap yeah. ones. But we were just more we just thought we were indestructible back then. We were so um I don't want to say arrogant. I think it was more naive that we were just like, we can do it. Because it was me and him were the ones doing it. So I'd if, say we were both. 
Yeah, <laughs> we. If, I think the, the opinion was, if the opportunity was there, we would maximise that opportunity. So if yeah. if there was, you know, a thousand customers, we'll serve nine hundred ninety nine of them if we can. You know, we'll do everything we can do to get there. But we just didn't have enough cash. We we spent it all on a marquee. Right. So, but, but you did end up quite quickly uh, Phil, doing some some festivals. Was it, was it the uh, Brighton Food Festival? Was it yeah, Brighton or, Food Festival? Yeah, um, was that the, the first only, ones that you that was actually a good one. We made, on, we made yeah. a bit of money at that one. I mean, this was this was our last about a year. Yeah, I always describe it a bit more like a hobby, really, because I was actually running Riddle and Fins by this point. I was a man. I was, oh, yeah. a, man, I was a manager there. I found a kind of. I remember saying to the owners that I wanted to do my own thing, but I need more experience. And I said, Can I? run one of your restaurants right. they had two in Brighton and they were like yeah go for it man so yeah. I was like awesome yeah I swiftly that was a good interview at that, that point Tom yeah I was like yeah I'm going to be your number two yeah got in there before the inevitable yeah so it was like you know you take your two days off and that's when you start prepping chips for the weekend you know for a festival or whatever so that was us for a year. We we did Brighton Food Festival. That was good, actually. We had two days there. We actually made some money. We always got great feedback. Yeah, I was going to say in, instantaneously mm. good feedback. Instantly, in, yeah, almost instant. People were like, wow, that's a really great chip with rosemary salt. That's incredible, and that's a really nice burger with proper meat. You know, I remember the first the first ever job we did was actually a, it was a 18th birthday party. There was a friend of my mum's who'd gone out on a massive limb for us, um, and I remember so we were serving like pissed up 18 year olds who you know they didn't really care what it was as long as it was yeah, we could have said them but there was a couple of uh, grown ups there who were <laughs> eating off and one of them was an outside caterer and I remember her eating it and she absolutely loved it it was a friend of my mum's and yeah she's a professional outside catering business and you know been in the industry a long time and she loved it and I was like hmm this is pretty cool like, I've actually got you know some feedback from someone who's got a sort of half decent palate and I'd, I'd cooked a lot of food for my mates at uni and that's what got me into food was that kind of instant reward you get when you kind of feed someone something and they like it it's like that's really cool I that's like that. the drug of street food I think that's what people get hooked on from a from an owner point of view and that is just actually handing someone a bit of food over a table and getting to watch them take their first bite in front of you and just it's a quite a unique feeling and I think that party was the first time we'd ever really taken money for some food that we'd created and mm. got that reaction it was a bit like a drug and why was the reaction good? what was different because burgers and chips have been around for a long time and they so what why was it so special we rosemary salt rosemary salt yes rosemary rice salt. cooked chips as triple well we did back then that was triple cooked chip with rosemary salt really that, yeah the focus is always on good meat i think that's where we've and, and actually the best thing about a burger should be the meat in our opinion not necessarily everything that goes on top of it so and it's homemade man that was the biggest thing for us like we didn't most burger restaurants not today but back then you have a burger from a outside catering outlet it's a bought in patty it's a bought in floury bat that you probably had at school on your bacon sandwiches that's been frozen already the Burger's been minced about five times. It's been pre-seasoned. It's literally just trim from that butcher's, you know, the the um still put it off the floor, hopefully off the floor, but you know, it's not it's not great quality. Um yeah. and trim is in, completely inconsistent. You might get some great bits, you might get some um crappy lean bits. So for us to be like, you know, even that burger, our first burger back then was a hundred percent chuck steak. Um 
and it was way more expensive than getting trim, obviously, but you could taste the difference and it was consistent. You had a good fat content and it was only minced on a five mil plate. So it was texture and stuff that we just thought of, we just thought it felt right and it, and it tasted good. Um, and it was this kind of chunky homemade farmer's market style burger that happened to be something we'd just been cooking for mates at uni. It was that style. And then, you know, Rose, we saw it on the chips and we were like, this is really cool. This is, you know, this homemade thing is how you differentiate yourself. And that's, I don't think that's how we didn't think that far into it. It was just about doing something that we were proud of. I wanted to cook food that I could invite my friends down to eat it and they would give me that instant reward that I was sort of seeking, you know, where I would feed them and they would pat me on the back and say, that's great. Yeah. Like a good little kind of puppy. Yeah. I'm smiling because I'm having flashbacks. So I, I've not forgotten, but I haven't thought of it for a while. So my parents had a catering wagon on the markets when I was a kid. And uh, I remember going in and helping them regularly. And uh, I'm having flashbacks of those burgers that had a bit of greaseproof paper, the frozen box of 48, you know, a bit of greaseproof oh, yeah. paper in yeah. between each one. That and, uh, and yeah, peeling it off and, sl- and slapping it on the grid. They get thrown on, they get cooked and then they get stacked up in the corner of the grill, right. don't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah, all ready they to go. You add all them with cheese, otherwise they wouldn't be particularly uh, moist. Kind of subtle pink texture running through. That's amazing how fast street food's come really that was our sort of you know it's the thing we were trying to change yeah. people always think it's like a swear word to say McDonald's around us but I, I think McDonald's is great like you pay 99p for a burger you know they're, they're not trying to pretend it's anything that it isn't yeah. right and they're actually a really fantastic company for loads of reasons that they don't get any credit for which I yeah. into. <laughs> they are they do some incredibly innovative uh, stuff and they don't get yeah. any credit for it because they're McDonald's yeah. but it's, it's the guys that want to serve rubbish and still charge you a lot of money yeah, really of, of which felt. there were a lot. And, um, and, and at that time, were you, were you called Honest Burgers straight away? Was the name from the start? Honest or? Eating Company at this point, because we uh, we thought maybe if we need to branch out, people might not. Which we did. We did a couple of hog roasts. Okay. Yeah, we did a one or two hog roasts, yeah. Because everyone, think... everyone loves a hog roast, but our heart wasn't in that. No. no. So, learned some good stuff, great feedback, and then uh, at some point you decided, right, let's do a restaurant. And I don't know whether... You met Dorian, and was he uh, was he a trigger for the restaurant? Were you already thinking about opening a restaurant? How did that come no, about? Man, we didn't have any money, so we were we. I mean, we didn't. We weren't making any money, were we? From um, Honest Eating Company, we were, we were we were loving it. It was good fun, but like I said, it was a hobby. We we're still sustaining our life with full time restaurant jobs, so it was. It, we're going to probably burn out if we carried on doing it. I don't think we really realised that. So. I um, we had a bit of a lucky break with a guy I was living with at uni. Just like go into the full detail of this, just how long-winded it is. My, my um, mate I was living with at uni. Phil's going to have a rest. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lot, you know, lots of different connections. But I came across a guy called Dorian, who's a mate of his older brother's. And Dorian worked with Strada, worked with Bills, did a couple of things with them kind of seasoned restaurant operator um, and he just heard all he heard about us is we were two lads from Brighton cooking burgers and we were called Honest um, so we met him and he sort of said are you interested in the restaurant industry and we were like yeah, we we both worked a lot in restaurants but haven't got any any money um, but we we got on really well we actually went up to his house in, in Clapham and he's obviously had a good career under his belt nice house I think we were duped a little bit we walked in and we were like oh maybe he wants Check, to checkbook. bankroll us a restaurant yeah, it's been nice we thought he was like this uber multi-millionaire restaurateur guy yeah so we, we agreed we were going to do it we were going to go out um, and give it a go but the kind of penny dropped 
quite savagely when Dorian was like, right, yeah, I'm going to come on board. I'm interested. I'll put in whatever you guys can put in. Um, which obviously <laughs> he knew that was absolutely fuck all. So, yeah, um, one yeah so we, <laughs> um, so we put, we put in two and a half grand each to get to this massive number of seven and a half thousand. Um, plus we had the kit from, uh, honest eating companies. We had a grill, we had a fryer, some tables, we had a lot of old doors. We used to use, um, we love the barn door. Yeah. I still like a barn door. Um, we had all that kit and then it was like that seven and a half grand wasn't meant for a restaurant. The, the idea was we would go out, we'd put a business van together, you know, a nice sexy pack that would be, would lure in a, a rich VC or a, a friend. Dorian has got a couple of, of wealthy friends who are in that industry may want to invest. So that's what we were thinking was going to happen. That's certainly what Dorian was thinking was going to happen, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Write a plan, yeah. get investment, open a high street, burger restaurant. And I think we thought, you know, that's, yeah, why not? Why yeah. wouldn't we want to do that? Like we, we, it would be Sounds better than great. using all of your weekends in Man, festivals, breaking is, even. I remember the drive so back tough. to Brighton after meeting him for the first time. Um, we'd all piled into my girlfriend's Cinquecento and we had all this kit in the back. And I remember us just being like, you know, late at night, just being like, Holy shit, like we could have, this This is, might happen, like we might have a restaurant, like this guy's going to have uh, open a restaurant. What What about what you guys were doing had appealed to him? Because he'd done some, like you say, some big stuff. This was potentially the VC route. Why was he yeah. talking to a couple of guys who were selling I think burgers at the weekend? he'd been burned a little bit by the industry. I, I, I don't want to speak for him. I think if he was sat here, he'd say it as well. You know, I think he'd been through the, the Strada um, journey, which, right. you know, as a concept when it started, was incredibly innovative you know really great fresh Italian food sort of road slash drove that Italian kind of wave mm. of um of restaurants in London and he was part of that almost from its infancy um grew up in that in, in that business through sort of area management and coming ops and um then saw it get bought out by you know the big corporate company and just saw that culture get chipped away a little bit and they just did all the classic things that we all think chains do don't they you know they tried to save money, they tried to make more money in certain areas and Strada just gradually peeled away. And I think those guys like Dorian who've been in it from the start just just felt a bit kind of, you know, disillusioned by it, I guess. So I think feeling like it's about time, you know, he made a lot of money for other people. Could he do something for himself? And then heard about these two young lads knocking up burgers. He liked the name, he was very keen on honesty, he thought it was a strong brand name, but also he had a better understanding of what's going on in London than we did on the food scene, and he could see this burger thing happening. You know, Byron had just opened probably yeah, I think maybe five, five or six, six restaurants yeah. by this point, and mm-hmm. they were they were the talk on the town. I mean, my brother's at Union London, and he told me, you got to try Byron Burger. So I think he could see this burger thing happening. And the... Took a punt, you know, come up and then cook me a burger and see what you think, lads. And you know, But Meat Wagon had just... My wife actually got me onto Meat Wagon, and they were in Peckham... Um, going around and doing a few pub car parks. And I tried their burger and was like, oh my God, that's insane. But not what we wanted to be. We wanted to go down a different road, but I was like, this is, I just saw, you know, there was like 200 people waiting for this, for this burger and then a really shitty little like white box. It was like, no, no brandy, no nothing. And they were all there because it was like something never tried before. Um, so I think there was that was kind of rumbling and yeah, we would, what we wanted to do was do things differently mm. and make things ourselves and go that extra mile. Um, 
I think our food is all right back then, but I mean, well, we thought it was all right back then. We always, we do this thing called Honest Day now where we uh, induct all of our um, sort of team members that work for us for four weeks or more. They come and they do a day and they, they come and spend a bit of time with me and Phil. And part of that day, we show them the first photo shoot that we did, that I did, that always gets a few laughs because the burgers looked awful in it, but we thought they were amazing. You know, yeah. we had like um, focaccia bun, don't know where that came yeah. from. Um, although I do see quite a few of the big boys using focaccia buns now. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, a few specials. But anyway, there's that. And then there was um, like a pile of cheese, like crumbling in the side and a bit of like streaky bacon. It was all like really wanky. But um, Ooh, that was a big one. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was you know, we, we were starting to develop this kind of concept that, was massively around this word honest and it was a British sort of style, British take with great ingredients and homemade food. So, so if, if when you left and you're heading back to Brighton, you're thinking, or, or a little bit afterwards, you know, you've got the seven and a half K and you go, right, we're going to go the VC route and we're going to mm. get some backing and stuff. Why did all of a sudden that change to we're going to open in Brixton? I think it was your fault. So yeah, so I, um, I take full credit for that one. I um, <laughs> went to, I moved to London to, Basically, I, I was only working in this restaurant, um, so I could just sort of up sticks and leave. So I, I moved to London with my um, wife and we got a flat in Brixton. Um, and literally, just very luckily, we, we went for a stroll um, on a Sunday afternoon and walked through Brixton Village and just fell in love with the place immediately. Thought, this is, this is incredible. And there was, you know, quite a few restaurants there, but not what it is today. Um, but there was still... That same buzz that I had when I was at the meat wagon, you know, people were just desperate to go there and people queuing up. I hadn't really seen that before. You know, people generally just sat there waiting for an hour for a table in a tiny little, you know, sort of fresh homemade pasta restaurant or something like that. I was like, this is cool. Um, what year was this? That would have been about 2010, I reckon. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. End of 2010. Yeah. So I then phoned up Phil and Dor and was like this place is amazing and I think we they were like nah, like they'd never heard of Brixton but as I hadn't you know for sort of five seconds before that but um I then went down on a Thursday night when it was because it was only open Thursday Friday Saturday nights then when on Thursday night it was absolutely buzzing down there um really good vibe great food again and we were and, hearing stories weren't we of this pizza guy doing 200 pizzas a night. Yeah, Frank Amanka was... Frank Amanka's yeah, first yeah. original. And then wow, was that, is that where they started? Yeah, yeah. The first one, and this is the story. You, you sold me on that, and you're like, no, there's this pizza dude. He's doing like 200 pizzas a night. And, and he's... He's out the door. He's like, on his... He, back then, he was on his own in Market Row. Yeah. Like, there's quite a few restaurants in Market Row now. He was the only one back then, and yeah. he was just bringing in people away. from all over. Amazing. Like, proper visionary. What's his name? Giuseppe? Guys. Giuseppe. He was there when, it, when the market was rough as well. Like, right. when we were there, it was a bit ropey I remember no he definitely laid but he went there he went there years before us so he's yeah good for him but we um I got Dora and Phil to come down and and see it and then they fell in love with it straight away so then it was a um that's probably one of the most kind of up and down points of my entire life from when I was Dorian got me a job working at South Bank Giraffe I've never felt so undermined just for being a human being in my entire life because, really? was there. because of the customers or the customer uh, day, daily I would get clicked really yeah people would just wow. go up is this the Americans or 
No, mostly Italian, like sort of. I think they're Italians and French mm. and and really? people. Kids just like mashing food into furniture, such and you busy, just have to go such around. A busy and, place. Yeah, so brutal. And I was, so I was working there and hating every second of it, whilst trying to do honest Brixton. And at that stage, there was a good two months where it wasn't going to happen because we were like, we haven't got any money. Yeah, how the hell can we open a restaurant with seven and a half grand? We all of the legals to go into a restaurant that we know now cost about 10 grand so we're like spend seven and a half grand on a sign yeah yeah I mean, exactly so all these things and door was like there's no way we can do it and so I was like please like we need to do this I'm going to fucking kill myself I have to work in draft anymore <laughs> Phil was working in Brighton working his notice out um, which was like a three month notice period which he very sort of diligently gave them um, oh, this guy see well done yeah, um, it's by name. honest by nature yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like yeah You'd, you'd handy nothing thinking that Brixton was going to happen. That was your reason, or just something was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we had a site and we were building it. So. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah. But it was for me, that this period of us not knowing whether we were going to do Brixton or not, so me basically persuading Dor to just forget about the legals because right. they're not important, no. right? Exactly. Um, the market. Like, the market. Like, Dor was like, we, we haven't got A3. I was like, we've got A3 years, so, yeah. so what? <laughs> I went around the market, asked everyone, I was like, do you have A3? They're like, what? What's that? Really? I was like, no one has A3, it doesn't matter. Come on, let's just do it. Please, I really need to do this. And and, post, and eventually we gave it a go. And my my step my, my stepdad and my mum, uh, he's a carpenter, so he did all the furniture, so we saved tons of money there. My wife's a graphic designer, so she did our branding, which, you know, that's 20 grand sort of straight away you can yeah. spend and, and some. Which has stood the test of time as well, hasn't it? Which is, yeah, it's kind really of good. iconic now. Yeah. I love that. that that for me you didn't marry for that reason there was no no we were we were very much in love before that (laughs) that was the kind of cherry on the cake though Um, she's very good at her job I remember being at Dawes house when we we all kind of felt that we had pushed her in that direction in terms of what we wanted but we were so like it'd be like herding cats with our kind of what we wanted on us to be and then she showed us this presentation and it was the blackboard and I remember just being like fuck that is amazing like I absolutely love that and it all kind of started to fall into place then yeah. that's when I felt like we had something that would really stand out yeah it's really simple and very cool um, so you, much as well, I'd love to go into the sort of a detail in real time because it blows my mind that you managed to open a restaurant in 7.5k fundamentally you did it um, first night Phil do you remember it how'd it go I mean, do you know what? I don't remember the first night. <laughs> I remember probably, first, probably, the first Thursday night. Probably lunch, wasn't it? Because they didn't really open on... No, no, we did. We did... Soft opening. Yeah. yeah. The first Thursday night, we did 89 covers, and we had those onion shreds on the menu that I nearly threw at you because we. I was on my own in the kitchen. Dora and Phil were outside doing their thing. I was, like, melting down because we've just done 89 covers and they were asking I didn't hear a rumour you used to hide under the sink, is that true? What's that? <laughs> you used to hide under the sink because yeah, the stress yeah, I've done that, that before, that. I just go so down. It's got some quiet time. You're pretty you exposed in Brixton Kitchen. kitchen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so the only way you could expose you could like, cry. hide is just to get on your knees and just <laughs> go by, otherwise customers could see you. So a few times, if you know, we were, if I knew we were going to run out of something or if the chip quality was poor or... These onion shreds that were on the min- on the menu for about ten minutes. I, and then I was like, I totally forgot about onion shreds. What were we thinking? I know. I don't. It wasn't what we were thinking. It sounded like he was blaming you what for those. The hell but that's onion uh, shreds. <laughs> I know, man. They actually yeah. tasted right, but they were just so difficult. Oh, it was like a quartered onion. 
No, no, they were like, there's like tobacco onions if we do some specials now. They were a bit like that. hell? And I was like struggling badly. Yeah. And they were like, Tom, where are the onion shreds? You could say, and I was just like, don't fucking talk about onion shreds now. And I'm like, you're lucky I'm still standing. Hard work, yeah. No, it was, I can't pinpoint the original early shifts. But yeah, like that. I just remember it being busier than we thought. Yeah. Almost instantly. Yeah. Like we were of the mindset that nobody has a clue who we are. No, nobody really comes to Brixton Market. Yeah, it wasn't what yeah. it is, what it became. Yeah. Like, if we do two hundred burgers a week, it'll be worth it. And I think Dorian was always like, "Okay, lads, you have a bit of fun in Brixton. Yeah, I'll still be out there trying to find some investment. Yeah, doing it properly. Yeah. And then of course, we just this. Thing just just exploded on us you know, like people I don't know like there's that that kind of perfect storm of burgers being good uh, being super cool and trendy you know the meat wagon effect Byron you know people talking about burgers Brixton market being edgy and that just sends people in London on a spin doesn't it they just love to think they found this yeah, like latest undiscovered cool uh, edgy kind of place um, and it just yeah we just had this perfect storm of and, and look I've that, that being too modest that, you know we served a really great burger and chips well, I was going to say where, where this goes from a lucky story of right time right place you guys are obsessive aren't you you're, you're, the, oh, yeah. the, you're you don't compromise uh, fundamentally seems to be the gist we, I got looking into you in the last really couple don't. of days we really but, don't uh, I think it's always been about and this is why street food's so great and this evolution now you're seeing this sort of food scene in London of street food traders who've now got four walls mm. it's just everything that food should be in my opinion yep you know, people who do something because of that. <laughs> that was your chair. That was your chair. Yeah. <laughs> I got the hall. I really yeah. hope that was your chair. Yeah. Um, small room. Yeah, this evolution now. And, and, and so we, we were absolutely adamant that it, the burger had to be done a certain way and the chips yeah. in particular. So that first month was just this, what I call now a quest for kind of homemade food, because we believed in, but actually had ourselves really tested because this unit that we were in was not much bigger than the room we're in now. I no, we idea were, how we to were, do it. We were yeah. hand making and hand cutting potatoes out of a bag, yeah. boiling them, cooling them, frying them, cooling them, bagging them up, serving them for the day, run out, start again the next day, yeah. every day. And it was just getting busier was and busier. Absolute, like, that was the, the biggest test, I think, of our kind of sanity was. We questioned how it. We, do we were that. like, can we really do these homemade chips? Because for us, they were as important as the burger. Mm. Um, and actually, I, I, I always cite two main motivators one we had Jay Rayner came down and review us which is mental anyway yeah, amazing but, well he reviewed the market to be fair and we, we kind of I, I was going to say do you know how you ended up on his radar but he we took well, he lived in Brixton so I think okay. he, he yeah, just he saw corner. this food scene so he talked about quite a lot of restaurants in the market but he, he mentioned us quite specifically about the aged meat juices running down his wrist and, yeah, and, what, your and he chips called our crystal, chips edible yeah. crystal meth I read that yeah, that's great so yeah. we had that and that gave us a little boost to go right no keep going yeah. let's keep going and then our competitor you know Tom Bing well we didn't see him as a competitor I'm sure he didn't see us as one then but the owner of Byron came down to check us out and uh, he told us to our faces that he didn't think it's possible, possible to keep to making our own chips really wow that, um, if we wanted to grow the business even in that restaurant or even certainly wow. two that we wouldn't be able to keep making our own chips so for me and Tom that was certainly enough incentive that's a motivation <laughs> isn't it there you go um, yeah. so kind of off the back of that we went we went and got ourselves a little we convinced Federation Coffee a coffee shop remember yeah, yeah, they had a. They gave us uh, they had a roastery off site and they gave us a little corner for two fries. Right. So we managed to get someone in there every day, then get ahead of ourselves on making chips. Yeah. And that really then just unlocked. And it's, it's that obsession with the detail, and I talk about this a lot in this podcast, but 
you know, the, the, a lot of the members of the public would have no idea how hard it is to make a decent portion of chips oh, and no, how time-consuming it is. All year round, it's, it is the hardest thing that we do, I think, from, yeah. a, from a food perspective. By a mile. Yeah, it's, yeah, and I get why people don't do it. Yeah, yeah I totally understand but, what um, you're saying now. You know, you look at the big boys, they're investing millions of pounds in, in the facility and R&D, like McCain's and Lambert's yeah. and all those people to get a consistent chip. Like, yeah. A remarkably then, average one at that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, as consumers, people are kind of okay with it and they'll spend four quid on a portion of frozen chips and it's yep. like all right we just didn't want to do that we didn't we, we were going to do two things burger and chips i'm not putting i don't want any one of those things to be available everywhere you know and that frozen chip that you get that everyone has had many times is available in like a million restaurants around the world like we don't want to be part of that club we wanted to have our own uh, our own thing that is a much more difficult to get your head around but the rewards are like, you know, next level. They're, they're so much better. So we were like on a mission to do it and nearly broke us for sure. And I'd be live. I didn't say there were many times where I thought, actually, we're going to have to just tap out and do frozen yeah. chips. And maybe we'll, we'll, we'll still have a rosemary salt on them. That's still be a little bit better. But yeah. I'd have, and if, a big um, part of me would have died, I think, if we yeah. I I did actually one make day, the this where we need, we ran out on Saturday night with about half an hour to go, and I and you were actually away that weekend. It was one of the first weekends I think you'd ever taken off in that first year. So I was in the kitchen. I remember getting home. We were living with my girlfriend's mum at the time in Norbury, and I got home dejected on Saturday. And I thought, like, I don't think we can open tomorrow. I've got no chips. I just don't know how I can get in, make enough in the morning. I've got none at all left. And bless her, I never, and, and I sort of sat there in a the pit for an hour and, like, oh. and I was like, no, we've got to figure out a way, we've got to do this, we've got to do it. And Helen, my girlfriend and her mum actually came down with me and were making chips off site. And it was literally like they'd bring me the next bag just as I was about to run out serving <laughs> wow. customers. Yeah. So I get me through for another 20 minutes and then the next yeah. bag would arrive yeah. and got me through Amazing. that Sunday. And I remember for me, I was like, we're never going to be in this position again never going to feel like that again mm. and this is when you know this prep kitchen just i think for me personally i was like we've got to nail this had you already bought the chipper at this point the seven no, quid one was just, you were still uh, in the hand. i was going to talk about because that's <laughs> what you well, that's a stupid thing to say but what you don't know you don't know and we yeah. just didn't know but i genuinely didn't know that obviously i knew that mccain's made chips and they made thousands of tons a week i didn't know how they did it no. I wasn't intelligent Children enough to just Google and be like, you know, how do you make chips in the last go? We were just so busy and so frantic. And then we came across this chipper that, you know, was like a miraculous sort of bit of machinery that, that could do, yeah, do what we I, would I do. I think I cried when I first saw it. Well, well, man, we're, we're on about version 25 of those chips. Yeah. It was like 40 minutes for a human being to hand chop a bag, 20 kilo bag of potatoes, like the record. And we picked this sack of potatoes up and chucked it in a chipper. And about a minute later, we had a yeah. had chips. I'm really crying now hearing about it. I can yeah. imagine. I've yeah. been well, we were like, I, you know, I, I don't think it was that we, we probably weren't as aware, <laughs> a bit naive maybe, but we were also like, got to be handmade, got to yeah, be hand absolutely. cut. And actually, yeah. we, it felt, it would have, it felt, I remember feeling like, shit, is this a compromise? And actually, I remember that first chipped chip and holding it against the hand cut one and being like, Oh, okay. They're literally. Like, <laughs> I don't know why. Why are we so worried? Like you cannot tell the difference no. at all. Because luckily, potatoes are different sizes and shapes. Yeah, we used the whole. We were using the whole potato, so we were skin on whole potatoes. You get the end bits are a bit lots shorter, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the middle bits yeah. are a bit longer. And yeah. and I was just it just opened again, opened the doors to us. Just Amazing. going right now. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, and the reason I'm I'm you know, spending a fair bit of time talking about it is I think people people look out and they just go, oh, yeah, you know, lucky, you know, burger and chips, thirty six venues or something like that. But it's those it's those points where you don't compromise that make the difference and set the scene. I think for the I next. Think, I think so, man. I think I think look, if you have any success in life, there's always a bit of luck. Mm. There's also an equal portion of bad luck you get as well, which we've had a fair share of. We just don't really talk about stuff like that, yeah. but you know the the tackling a, a something that no one had ever done didn't phase us and that was the thing that I was like that's what I love about Phil and I love about sort of Dora is we were we were so committed to doing something differently yeah, yeah. whatever it took none like, of you say get down to Iceland yeah we, 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 we thought about it like naturally you, you go to some dark places when you're on your knees in a kitchen with like a hundred people queuing up for it but it's um we knew deep down we'd find a way, I think, we and we had to, because we'd served, you know, even that very first ship we served back at that 18-year-old birthday party, that's what people came for um, with our Bluegrass to our chips, and we couldn't go back against that. And I know today, if we put a frozen chip on the menu, I would hope we would lose every single one of our head chefs, every single one of our managers, I would really hope they would walk out the door straight away because um, I'd be following them. And, you know, stuff like that that you just, you can't go back on. Yeah. You know, that is what we we feel proud of. And that's, I put a huge sort of emphasis on our success yeah. because of that kind of stubborn doggedness that we were like, we'll make this work or it will kill us. Mm. And I think with a name like Honest, having that uh, integrity well, and authenticity yeah, exactly. is yeah. kind of fundamental, really. No, it was a real firewall, as it should be. Yeah. yeah. Um, it really made us think on certain things. Like, oh, do you think we're actually, no, we can't, we can't do that. No, like, yeah, well, we're going to come into shortly how you, um, you know, are a chain and not a chain. And I'm aware that you both hate that word. And, and one of the key reasons I was excited to come and speak to you is because you're one of the few people that seem to be walking that tightrope in such an impressive way. And we'll come into details of that in a minute. But before we do, I just want to go, so so you go from that sort of, yeah, carnage, learning, you know, learning about each other, learning that that, that authenticity is key. Uh, what's the point where you go, right, we're going to go again? And how long was it before you opened this is, the second one? This is really the Dorian impact, I, I would say. I think we very quickly fell into our kind of roles and Tom very much on the food side, the business and me being more front of house sort of people and, and um, uh, service point. And Dorian kind of started very quickly into being just being the commercial head behind the scenes, really. So nice. he was out there already thinking about number two. You know, he, he'd come off the back of growing businesses. You know, he knew what yeah. it felt like and what it took. So I just don't think we'd have had the guts or the know-how to do that so quickly. No, it was good. Yeah, Dor kind of... Cause Bear in mind, we'd worked in busy restaurants, but I was 20, Four. I was 24, yeah. So it's pretty naive and we had quite a bit of, you know, it was a contained success because it's in a you know tiny little shoebox in Brixton. But I think you could have lost yourself a little bit in that and you could have got a bit carried away and not focused on what we need to be focusing on, which is this is an opportunity to do something amazing not just kind of sit back and think we're, you know, Burger Thanks Kings now. Cash. We've got, yeah. yeah, we've got one restaurant and, you know, it was, we're, we're queues at the door. It was very much for us to be like, this is an opportunity. Let's see what we can do with it. So, yeah, yeah door going into Soho was a big step, you know, to, to raise proper money. I think that restaurant cost us about 200 grand. Okay. So we had to get, your second one. Yeah, yeah. So we had to get, we did like a friends and family whip 
round. That's still a good, you know, I don't know how big it is. How many covers is that? Is it? It's about 40. We've done the basement since now, so we've got more downstairs. Right. But it's still not a stupid amount of money to open. Yeah, well, again, we did. Tight, like, the the premium was 120, I think. That's basically what we needed the money for, I think. Yeah, well, everything else massive finance, premium. We, we did from the... the rest. We did all the strip out ourselves. It was an old Indian restaurant, so I... I remember, so because Brixton Market was closed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night at this point, so I would go up on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night and just demolish as much of it as I could to get it out before the builders came in. So it was like ripping up tiles. I cut a walk-in fridge in half and nearly cut my leg off at the time with this like massive angle grinder. That would have been Yeah, no, that was that the, the moment where no. I was like... So I, I went to a builder's next door and was doing a development and I said, have you got an angle grinder? And I was expecting... You know, little handheld kind of. I could just go to this yeah. massive walk-in fridge and be like, and just cut it in half. And the guy was like, "Yeah, yeah it's over there." And this one's like this big, petrol-driven proper kind of, uh... beast. <laughs> so I was in there on my own at like you know eight o'clock at night, and I went through this uh, this walk-in fridge and hit a bit of metal, and it just spun off and just went straight past my leg. And wow. I was like, <sighs> kind of put it down. And but we did stuff like that, and I, I quite enjoy stuff like that anyway. But we we needed to because we knew we didn't have the budget and we had a door had good contacts with project managers and builders who'd done bigger projects and they kind of all saw the fire in our eyes and saw that we needed a bit of a favour I think and you know paid off for them because they got lots of work out of it yeah. afterwards but we opened that site and I think we thought we'd massively cocked it up because we'd opened in the middle of um, the Olympics so it was dead. Um, right. And you know, TFL kind of screwed over most of London, telling everyone not to yeah, don't go outside, don't come into work, stay <laughs> at home, lock the doors. Yeah. yeah. So we opened the we opened our doors to the restaurant, and it was empty. Yeah. And we were like, oh, that's bubble burst. We're going to last about a month, and then we're going to run out of money, and then that's that. Yeah, it was like, okay, we've been a bit arrogant here. Yeah. No one really still yeah. really knows who we are. Yeah. We're in our own home, and but. I'm yeah. wincing because I'm I'm very much aware of that terrifying feeling. Oh, almost, almost like you can almost vomit just through the fear. It's of, like you oh, can shit. wade through the, the tension in the air yeah. when you've oh, got sorry. like a member of staff there and they're yeah. sat twiddling their thumbs, nothing yeah. to do, you're and you're on the payroll. Here, <laughs> the worst drop. things in restaurants happen when they're quiet as well. The worst mistakes happen from, it's true. from people. Yeah, people, people yeah I, I just you know I'd come off the back of a year of trying to manage a two-hour queue every night in Brixton. So it was a year between the two, was it? Between a year most of the day, yeah. So June 2011, I think we opened in Brixton. And yeah, yeah. So it wasn't nice for a couple of weeks, and then um, we held I, our nerve, there, didn't we? We, we did we hold just up. about. I wanted to put like a boards on Wardour Street and Dean Street, and put all our amazing quotes in the windows and reviews, and something we always said we didn't do, we wouldn't do. Tom held the line. He was like, "Don't do it, man. Don't do it. We'll be fine." And then, sure enough, the the Olympics finished, and and it changed. We and that, that yeah. really was the moment for me. I remember telling friends and family at that point, you know, look, we've just done a second one, and. We didn't change our prices. Everyone thought we put our prices up. Yeah. Didn't feel right to us. Everyone thought we'd add stuff to the menu. We didn't. And it was just the same format. And it was crazy busy again. And that's when I realised we could have a few of these. I was like, there's no reason we can't have really? four or five. Okay. I didn't think 37, but... Yeah. <laughs> so how quickly then, so you do, you know, you do two in a year in essence. And then presumably what happened in year two? How quickly did you start opening venues? Easy, we did Camden next. And Camden. Camden's a bit more like Brixton, so it's a small unit. Yeah. Like fifty or k to fit it out, so um, yeah, we're kind but of. I mean, we we had some one or two a year for a couple of years. And then, okay. I think we did some. I certainly, we both did some soul searching in terms of what was needed of us now because it yeah. wasn't 
work, you know, when we did Brixton Soho, in some ways it was easier because it was like, I just need to be chained to that grill, cooking the best burgers on the planet and Phil needs to be serving them and doing the best job. Um, so that was kind of a bit more simplistic. And then you get this opportunity and you have to step up and now you're like, oh, now I need to try and manage a load of chefs and Phil needs to manage a load of front house people and we need to manage ordering and I need to try to think about stock takes and GPs and I don't know, a new site and fit out and yeah. customers are going to come in and all this stuff. And it was just like, Jesus, how do we... Technology, probably, EPOS systems, all that kind of stuff. I just, I sometimes feel yeah. more like a tech company than a restaurant company and miss those old days of being just mm, like, simple, uh, yeah. What, yeah. what would you like to eat? We've still got the, the first till. First ever till over there. And it's literally just one of those, you know, I think you bought it from a cash to carry for like 50 quid. And it's yeah, like... Push a button and the till opens. No, no, like now you've got like 20 <laughs> tablets servicing... Yeah, centralised reporting. All the bloody... Uh, you know, delivery concepts. Out there, so. Our industry, we love a report, don't we? Oh, <laughs> so many KPIs. So, at what point then? So, let's get into this kind of you know scaling up because this is the bit where I think, like I say, fascinating that you've managed to do this so well. But at what point do you decide uh, centralized kitchens, for example, and then you've even now set up your own butchery? Did they come together yeah. or were they split apart? Or? No, so we we done. Um, so we'd moved at this point. We were a, a second prep kitchen, which is in Brixton in an archway. Um, so I did. Yeah, I, I was like, this is the formula for us, the prep kitchen side. It's, it's, um, it worked because it's a cost saving, was a big one. We didn't have to put in specialist bits of kit in every restaurant. We didn't have to have space for specialist bits of kit in every restaurant. At like premium central London prices, we could just get a little space outside and, you know, in, this was in Brixton and run it all from there. And How many venues did you have at this point when you opened the prep, prep kitchen? Well, the second prep kitchen, we always had a prep kitchen. So the first one was right. Brixton. That was about a month or two months after we opened. We got this, we rented a little space right. in this, you know, derelict warehouse, basically. Um, so the time we got a proper prep kitchen was probably site three, let's say Camden, when we got there, then we had our own. Um, and it was, you know, if you could just time lapse that archway over the next couple of years, it just went bigger and bigger and bigger, more equipment, more fryers, more fridges, more um, chippers, everything just increased. Um, it's still in the same location now? No, 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 God, no. Oh, now, no. now we're in, I mean, that was probably a 500 square foot archway. Oh, wow. Okay. Now we've moved, since then we've moved to our fourth prep kitchen, which is about 7,000 square foot. We've always done it, you know, we've had to do that. You know, that was back in our mentality when we had five restaurants, every single penny we spent was on the restaurant. Yeah. And it wasn't on anything else. And we were, you know, we knew the prep kitchen was important, but we didn't invest in it like we should have done, I think, in terms of putting in, you know, things that aren't incredibly labor intensive and very physical, very manual. Right. But we made it and we had we had a good, um, we had a guy called Rasim, who was our prep kitchen manager, who was, who was great and really helpful and worked hard. Um, but you had to bust your ass up when you're in there. Like yeah. it's proper, if you you had to every minute counted and you were just frying chips like a madman. Um, but it was close enough to the restaurant so you, you, you'd deliver. You could literally just those. walk stuff over with these little trolleys and, okay. and wheel them over. And then we started piggybacking deliveries to our suppliers, going into Soho, going to Camden. Um, 
it's just reminded me actually I'm having a flashback I'm going to ask you the story because I thought it was great when I was listening this morning just thinking back to your early deliveries and there was a story of you in the early days rocking up to pick up bread and meat I think and gaffer taking yeah. a load of bread rolls you sounded like the Michelin man because by contrast I suppose to how you know professional you've become with that with that uh, kitchen yeah, you just tell that story of, of why that happened yeah. <laughs> so we it's when we that first decided, yeah, that was like before we actually opened Brixton, it was we needed to get a butchers on board because that was a big part of our brand was going to be about good quality meat, which would, um, you know, be well, well sort of sourced, well farmed and tasted great. So Ginger Pig were the only butchers that actually were interested in working with us, believe it or not. All these um, old school butcher dudes I'd speak to we just weren't interested. They were really patronising and patted me on the back and sort of told me to to, to move on. Um, we got Ginger Pig on and they were really up for it and they got great meat and we we enjoyed, we really liked their brand and all that kind of stuff. But I hadn't told them where Brixton, I didn't tell them we were opening up in Brixton, which is a massive sort of faux pas on my point. So eventually I signed all the forms to get our um, account set up and then he phoned me up straight away and was like, we can't deliver to Brixton because you know we can't just send a van all the way from Marlebone down to Brixton and back with like 20 quid's worth of beef mints. It's just not going to work. So I was like, doesn't matter. That's fine. I've cocked this up. I've got a new bike. I'll cycle to Brixton and uh, to Marlebone and back and do that and collect the meat and just chuck it on my back, um, thinking I can you know do this without impacting everyone else. And then I went into work one day and the bread hadn't been delivered because they hadn't got access to the market. So I phoned the bakers and said, all right, drop it off at Marlebone. I'm going there anyway. I'll pick it up. I didn't consider how I was going to put 200 buns on my back at that point. But I was like, I'm going there. I'll sort it out. So then, yeah, I got some masking tape and put all the bread in a bin bag, which, you know, bread is not well traveled in bin bags. Chucked it all in there. They use those crates for a reason, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. To, <laughs> probably to protect them. But I... Um, I yeah, got some masking tape and got this butcher who actually we went to um, Ginger Pig a couple of months ago and the same butcher was there and he was like, I was the one who duct taped. No, um, no, he was the one who took the photograph, wasn't he? <laughs> um, so I got, I was just stood there just like, you know, casual as anything with like the rich people of Marlebone buying their sausages and I was just getting bread duct taped to my back. Um, and I got it back, but luckily, so that that moment, they the butcher took a photo, um, sent it to Tim, who's the um, owner of the Ginger Pig, and then Tim was like, he came down to Brixton the next day. Um, he's you know quite a big ask of a, a Yorkshire farmer, um, and he came down and loved it, and we had a good chat. Um, and he was like, all right, I'll deliver meat to you. Yeah. It shows that that dogged determination. I think sometimes you know people love that. People I think it went, you. it went a long way for him. He's old school, you know. Yeah, he's been yeah, top totally old school, and thing. he They're was like, about. "I like you. Yeah. I like what you've done." And he, anywhere we get, we cooked him a burger, and he loved that. And he was just like, oh, "Thank God, now we've got a we've got a good relationship with the butcher." And I learned tons of him. Learned tons about meat and tons about yeah. farming. So it was useful contact. Is that picture on the website somewhere of you as the Michelin Man with you know duct tape bread? Or the yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah, I've got that. Yeah. Yeah. Mean, chapped up because that was the butcher's phone. But I've got a picture of what it looked like when, when he arrived at the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, and I had to break into him that we couldn't use a single one of those buns because they were completely crushed. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, we've got a picture that we, uh, yeah, of that did, actual bag. And yeah. Did you go uh, hats off to him, that's good effort, or did you think my business partner is a twat when he, yeah. when he walked uh, We never pat each other on the back, so I'm sure. He just took the piss out. It's like yeah. an effort, man. I mean, I've yeah, already preempted the fact we can't use them. And, <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> know. Um, yeah, oh, it, it definitely, you know, it's one of the things I, I love about it. Yeah, it's, why you, it's gonna, why, you work, why you work together. We're not going to give up when it, yeah, for a little thing like that. So then, funnily again, enough, though, we, we we tell the story at our inductions, and one of the guys put his hand up and was like, "Why don't you just get the tube? Yeah. <laughs> Why did you cycle? Why don't you just get the tube? Yeah, and I was like, you have one of those granny bags. You could carry loads of meat and have it fine." It's like, shut up. smart ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did he get fired? No, yeah. just um, so leaping forward again, then, just so, so by contrast, you end up opening uh, a butchery. For what was the reason for doing that yourselves? Is that about quality? Is it about provenance? What's what's the reason for doing all that in house? It, 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 it ticks off a lot of things, but most first and foremost, I think we just felt like um, there's a few things we need to protect in the business. One is medium rare burgers. Mm, it's a yes. big big deal for us. Right. We always felt like it's a real marker of quality in people's yeah. minds, and just we like the way it eats. It's a real just tastes great. Um, so protecting that as we got bigger was really important to us. I think just, we've always liked, just in all areas of business, like control, as yep. in, I would like to know that if our burger's shit today, that it's our fault. Yeah. And we like that feeling of it, that accountability. Mm. And we had that with the chips, we had that with pretty much everything else on the menu. But like everybody does, we were buying in a patty. Yeah. Right. Our, you, our specification, our yeah. you know, the yeah, mincing we yeah, wanted, the fat content, supply. the cuts of beef. But you know, there are times when you think, are we really getting what you think they're getting? And does this taste right? And we just ran into a few issues around scale. Um, you know, obvious. You know, very worthy issues. You know, nothing sinister going on here. Um, but yeah, and I think this, this, the feeling was actually we need to do this ourselves. We can could you still sell them medium rare when you were buying them in like that? Yeah, you could. yeah, yeah. So there was a home moment when the FSA brought out, because they got a bit blindsided by all these medium rare burgers mm. being sold, and by their understanding, hundreds of people should be dying every day. Yeah, you know, absolutely. This, this, isn't, this isn't okay. Um, but then they brought out a legislation called LTTC, which is less than thoroughly cooked. And I remember we were buying our meat from Select, who were great. We, had, we used Select for probably a couple of years um, and they helped us sort of bridge this long gap where when we had to move on from the ginger pig and when we use those guys um, and they they phoned up and said the FSA's got this this new accreditation it's LTTC and we're, we're registered we got it and I was like I sort of thought oh that's, that's brilliant and I put the phone down and I, what I thought and I was like fuck we're massively in their hands now and if they fail an audit if they mm. get something wrong they'll lose that accreditation we can't serve medium rare so we started thinking, you know, we've got a prep kitchen. We know how to do things ourselves. Why don't we give it a go? Um, so we did. Yeah, we, we we invested, you know, two restaurants worth basically into getting a, a, a butcher's open. So we had full understanding of what goes into our burger. Um, we could specify the machinery that we use. So we actually chop our um, mince, sort of chop our meat. We don't mince it. Because effectively mincing is just squashing something through a small plate at um, high pressure, which is terrible for the cell structure and it like denatures the, the texture. And you know, most minced burgers are minced two would be good, but most of them are three or four times to get the fat content. And if you're putting seasoning in, which we don't, but some do. So you end up with this rubbery, bouncy texture 
this million miles away from what we want a burger to be. So we roll chop, which is just like you would at home if you were going to make steak tartare on a bigger scale. So you end up with, uh, I use the example with a, a garlic press. Uh, you know, if you smash a garlic uh, bowl through a garlic press, you get a wet pulp. Yeah. If you chop that bit of garlic with a sharp knife, you get texture and you get, you know, um, a much better result, I think. But, you know, garlic press is easy. That's, yeah. in my is this, opinion, and is this done by hand or by machine then? You this get, machine, yeah. It's called bowl, bowl right. cutter. Yeah. Not back to your pre-chip cutter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've got like 10,000 people cutting meat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah. And what are the rules? I can't remember on the, uh, the uh, medium rare. I remember back in the early days, it was like, oh, you have to mince it on the day or it has to be minced inside. The, the rules and regs seem to change. But what, what's the current situation and the, to qualify to be able to sell your burgers? So the LTTC regulation is... is um, that accreditation is only applied to a butchery, so it's not even an abattoir level, but the abattoir needs to be, they need to conform to it. So normally it's it's increased micro sampling, um, which is expensive, um, but, you know, getting everything tested, getting swabs, internal, external swabs of the of the meats, of the carcasses, all that stuff is like a prerequisite and should be should be happening anyway, in my opinion. The tighter controls come when you get into a butchery, which is what we've learned, becoming LTC, LTTC registered butchery, which is a lot about temperature control. Um, that meat has got to go through the line and go back into a fridge, um, stay below two degrees at like record speed. And you need to just give a damn really. And a lot of these companies are massive and they turn over hundreds of millions of pounds a year doing what they do, doing what they know best. And then something new comes along and they do not like it. So they're just not interested. And fair enough, you know, they, they could just sell 10,000 burgers to 10,000, 100,000 burgers to Sainsbury's or, you know, whoever. It's not for them to really worry about. So I completely get it. But for us, it's the most important thing we do is to make sure that burger is cooked medium and medium rare. That's like 80% of our customers eat it like that. So... Yeah, we'll jump through any hoop you throw at us to make sure we've got that covered. And like Phil said, it's great. If we fuck up anything these days, it's our fault. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the, uh, yeah, not buying frozen chips. It's the ultimate version of that, I suppose, isn't it? As you've mm. now got control all the way down through the supply chain. People have asked a lot, like, they say, well, you know, why, what do I think about Honest and why do I think Honest is great? Yeah. I would say Honest is great. I mean, the answer I generally give is that I just think sometimes we're just willing to try just a little bit harder. Yeah, care a bit more. Yeah, when other people go, well, that homemade chip's quite tough to do, actually. We're like, okay, well, let's find a way. And, you know, we just try a little bit harder when it comes to the quality of our food. And yeah. so far, so good. We managed to pull it off. Yeah. Well, carrying on that, try a bit harder, although one question before that, because you end up needing to get some much more serious investment. Presumably there's a point where you go, right, you know, to grow this. So you end up, is it right? Am I right in saying you, you got 50% sold 50% or got 50% investment to get some serious yeah, yeah. cash so in? Is that right? About that. Yeah. The press is always the wrong number. It's yeah. the, our lovely press. Um, they do the homework. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we took on, I think we were at nine sites. It was Clapham, wasn't it? When we opened Clapham, that was we our... Clapham when the deal went through, yeah. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was kind of, you know, we worked our ass off um, and we wanted to have a bit more financial security in the company and grow the company. Um, so we, we brought on, we started thinking about, you know, selling a bit and active. We, we had quite a few offers on the table from some of the bigger PE houses out there. 
But then, you know, we, we met Active and they were great and they had some really cool brands on their books. And that was a big one for me as I was like, I'd feel proud to have our name next to some of the other guys they worked with. That was with. the likes of Leon, was it? Rafa, Leon, Soho House, finished there. There's some real cool brands they worked yeah, with. Lovely. So um, we were like, that could be, that could be um, yeah, it could be cool to work with them and, and to learn, you know, we're still, we're on this constant kind of quest to keep on learning and keep improving ourselves personally and the business. Um, and that's a whole new world, you know, yeah. how the, the PE world works. And it's very important to be funded correctly um, if you want to grow a business. So, and, and that's been successful. It hasn't felt too different for, I suppose, because sometimes you hear you get these big VCs and fold. In fact, you gave the example earlier with Strada and how different it felt for Dorian. But is it, has it felt very different as a company since that point? No, or not, not, really? not at all. And, and you know, you've got to give Active a huge amount of credit for that. They really are... And I have no basis of comparison in terms of PE houses, they're the only one I've worked with. But, uh, you know, I was expecting different because you, you do, you hear the word investor, you hear Absolutely. the word chain and you yeah. go, oh, they just want money and yeah. they're going to try and chip away at what you do. And it's the opposite. We found that I found it the opposite. They've just really dovetailed in nicely with us. They've supported us as a management team. They've really just let us go with it. And they know what's made us, they know what got us to nine restaurants successfully and they're not stupid. So... Mm. Why come in and change something that's working, right? So, they never once suggested a frozen chip or a reduction of the quality of the beef. If anything, they've they've always promoted and instigated conversations where can we improve it? Yeah, well, they were fully supportive of the butchery. You know, well, for they, us they to say the butchery, they gave us the money to open our own butchery. Some that's, people to be like, you know, we we could open two restaurants and we could make this much EBITDA of that, or we could open a butchery and make right. our burger better and yeah, make everyone in our company feel more pride for us. So then they were fully yeah. on board of that. So it's not for them about, you know, getting out and doubling their money in three years. Of course it is, yeah. Is it longer term? It's not why is that? They are more they long term. They've done, you know, yeah. they've had Leon for a long time. They they had Rafa for a long time. They're, they're, they're <coughs> brand they're not hitting. They're not hitting credit, are they? They're not sort of three, three no. year, three times. It's a longer term. Yeah, which some of them, I mean, that's what you've got to be careful of and that's what we were very cautious of is there's PE houses and then there's PE houses and yeah. some of them, like you said, they couldn't give a... Yeah. I'm not going to say it, but an, an, an F. The thing you, you the thing you think of now is well, like you know, the ne- it's always about the next deal. So once you're in that private equity kind of on that hamster wheel, so to speak, and that there is that about it. You know, it's we've had a really good experience of private equity, I think, so far. But that you are on a wheel now where if we sell again, that person needs to think in in three or four years' time, how do they make their money? Absolutely. So you're you're always almost you're you're two rungs ahead now all the time, and that that can put pressure on you if you're not yeah. thinking about it in the right way about where you're going to open, where your growth strategy is, where your pipeline sits. Yeah. Well, for me, it's one of the things that I think has, has ruined uh, the sector in many ways is is this kind of VC backed uh, property game: buying at fifty, flip at hundred. Somebody else buys in a hundred, flips at two hundred, and we've ended up with these massive, you yeah. know, companies. Pizza Express being owned by a Chinese company with one point two billion pounds worth of debt, you know, paying ninety five million pound a year in interest alone. And you yeah. think, how did that happen in in, in hospitality? So yeah. it's nice to know there's another way. Uh, oh, listen, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, we're, we're, we're still small game, really. Um, yeah. We're not, certainly not going to sit here and, and bemoan or, or pretend that we're, you know, better than anyone else. You know, we've we've yeah. still got a long way to go. But, yeah, I know what you're saying. And I think 
we, we've been really smart, really proud of our property strategy over the last year or so. What yeah. we've not done is gone to these, particularly out of London, mm. you know, we've not gone and highly leveraged ourselves against big glass box, high rent yeah. sites in these out of London towns. It's easy to do. If you go really back five easy. years when everything's flying and the economy's Absolutely. booming and the restaurants, everyone's open restaurants. You know, like there's a few of the big guys who did it and they opened sites that had to do 60, 70 grand a week just to break even. It's yeah. like... You're just not going to do that can, outside got, London. We've got not sites that do 12 grand a week and they are very healthy businesses. You know? And we, yeah. we're we very aware of that. You know, we take on little runty sites that no one else has forgotten your seven and a half grand investment. Exactly. There's a property play, but we also, we don't want to be in these areas. You know, we, mm. we intentionally, you know, we look to go to Liverpool, you look at Liverpool and you go, oh, no, not for us. That's where the chains go. And then this is, I know you want to come on to it, but chain versus anti-chain. Not, not trying to pretend we're not one. Yeah. We are one, but we don't have to act like one. Yeah. And I think we'll that's be. how we feel. We don't have yeah. to act like one. And we're not just going to be lazy and open in Liverpool one or in spinning fields in Manchester. We're going to go to a street which we think has got good operators on it, a mix of, you know, local indie and just good food and where good people who like good food are going to go and those are the environments we like to mix it yeah no I think it's brilliant and, and we'll put on to it now so where it's come up a few times in the podcast chatting to craft gin makers or craft beer makers or these kind of uh, more niche who, who, are, who are genuinely small and genuinely authentic mm-hmm. and then I guess the big brands sort of spot this change and they start to copycat and they start to use words that, that they can use um, and whereas you guys uh, are you know technically a chain I guess from your the, the number of venues you've got you can say what, it, yeah, right. yeah, alright I'm not going to get thrown out before we finish no, but actually genuinely hats off because what I loved is reading about how you how much work you put in not only from the locations that you choose not being in the chain strip but particularly around this idea of collaborating with local providers and this thing about managers can choose their own local beer and the fact that there's a, a, a burger in each place that's local can you just talk a bit about that Phil? yeah it's, it's, I'm, I'm so proud of that actually I'm, I'm really proud of the effort we've gone to there um, and again yeah, to give, give Thomas credit you know going back to the Britain days just really pushing the envelope on a special burger it's before we had this local thing but just really taking that special burger and going well that's the fun time on the menu we always knew that keep the menu small keep it core don't do menu creep don't make that mistake that chains make so the special the monthly special was really our bit of fun our bit of playtime and I think Tom deserves more credit than he gets actually for really kicking off this collaborating with other brands and other restaurants and you see it a lot now not just burgers um, and it was one of the first really to kick that off. And I think off the back of that, we realised actually, let's try and give some of that playtime to our to our managers. And this, for me, the part of the business that I think we need to protect is, is that freedom, that trust in our staff. That's what you lose as you get bigger. That's what, for me, a chain mentality is. It's actually when you start losing faith and trust in your staff, you start giving them reams of service steps and, and telling them what to look, how to look and what to say because you don't trust they're going to get it right every time, okay? And that's where you lose that, that kind of spirit that you want that we started with and we were damn sure we're not going to, we're going to try and hold on to that spirit for as long as possible because we didn't start like a chain. Some businesses that our chain started like them. It's not about how many sites you've got. I'm yep. absolutely convinced you can have one restaurant and feel like a chain more so than a company that's got 20. It's about how you begin, what you believe in, and how you conduct yourselves. And we definitely didn't start like one. We don't mean to grow like one. So for us, it's about retaining that. What autonomy can we give them, really? You can't fuck around with the Honest Burger. It's the Honest Burger. But what can you do? Well, go out into your area, and if you want to work with that deli or you really like that restaurant, go and talk to the chef, and let's try and create a burger. And listen, you're going to get the full weight of Tom, who's the expert here, you tell him what you want to do and he's going to come and give you your opinion. And if you've gone a bit nuts and it's not on brand, he's going to tell you, but have a go, 
Yeah. Go out and create relationships with your suppliers, with local breweries, and have a bit of the menu that's yours. Yeah. And and same for the customers. Have a bit of the menu that's yours in Ealing, and a bit of the menu. And for us, it's a real this trust thing. I'm really, really passionate about, and I, I call it a three out of five mentality. And that's what chain restaurants are. And if you think of a review scale, you know, a three out of five review is when someone just feels nothing for you. Yeah, indifference. And I do I do training sessions for our shift managers. It's called an old school hospitality day, and they have to come with me. I did one yesterday. I had 12 of them in a room. And I just, I'd honestly, I'd rather someone hated us than thought nothing of us. I'd rather someone gave us a one out of five review than a three out of five. Because for me, if you're not trying for five, when you, when you go for five out of five, you're going to get a few ones. And that's what this industry is about. And, you know, Tom maybe will chip in a little bit here. I think our business is less and less about burger and chips now. It's about the feeling. We're all restaurants. We sell a feeling. We Hospitality, know, isn't it? It's how you make people feel yeah, fundamentally. Exactly. It's how we make people feel. For us, that's a really great burger and chips. It underpins everything. But it's the feeling we've got to get across. And actually, if you do it right, you create a human connection. Mm. That's what we say to our front of house staff. That's how I talk to them. I say, go out there, have the guts to be yourself. So wear what you're comfortable in. Get your tattoos out. Your hair's yours, not ours. Be personable, have a go. Try and read this customer. What does he want? Does he want to be left alone? That's good service. Does he want a bit of joke? Does he want to connect? If you do that, you've got a chance at five. If you do it and get it wrong, which you will, I've done it. I've t- I like touching customers. I've touched the wrong customer. Gone in for a hug and regretted it. Um, yeah, you risk a one, right? And that's what chains don't want to do yeah. they're so terrified they're terrified of a one and when they get a one their reaction to it is right let's create a rule yeah nobody can touch customers anymore yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is fine you don't rule, get that yeah. one out you don't get that one out of five anymore yeah. but you don't get any fives you end up in three yeah. you get ugh. and that's what a chain restaurant is you don't feel anything for a chain it serves a purpose yeah. and that's no. i don't care whether we've got 500 or we have five or we have one when I'm never going to give up that we can't still create that special feeling mm. that you get when you go into a place that generally gives a shit about a human interaction. Yeah, that authenticity behind it, and I think it's I think it's impressive because I think it's rare that people pull it off. I think once you know, I was um, interviewing uh, Mitch Tonks, you know, from um, yeah, yeah, yeah. seafood kind of places. I know his daughter. Do you? Okay, mm. uh, he's a bath boy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's where he started with his fishmongers and stuff. Yeah, like. yeah. And and their kind of aim was um, twenty. He thought once you got above twenty venues, it was really difficult to maintain that independent uh, kind of flavour. Uh, Rob Hudson from the Pig, who also did um, Hotel Devan, seems to get to sort of twelve or fifteen. Very rarely do people seem to get above twenty, maybe twenty five, and, and keep that independence. Um, but I think you guys have, which is which is phenomenal. I think the reason is because you're not doing it. To try and hoodwink anyone, it's that it's genuinely authentic, isn't it? You genuinely believe because I was I, again. I think I was listening. It wasn't just about collaborating with other people, as in you know, let's buy a local product and tick the box. But there was an example you were given about helping somebody out with prepping onions. Was this for a relish or something like that? that yeah, really, and it seemed it was more than just ticking a box. It was a human to human connection. Yeah, I mean the the local element is it's not. We don't just do it for the sake. We do it because it's amazing food as well, right? And same with beers. Some of the best breweries in the world are in in the UK. So. We get to work with people that are genuinely like masters of what they do. Um, and it means we're, you know, there's, there's reasons to not work with those com- some companies like that. And I get why some of the bigger companies don't because it is hard. And, you know, allergens is a massive um, risk at the moment. It's all over the sort of press and people have been caught off guard and serious um, consequences happen. So you have to work a lot harder 
to work with some of these guys because the level of where they are with their business isn't necessarily where potentially we are with ours in terms of you know the food safety side of things but again we just we, we jump through that hoop willingly um and you know the example you gave was a girl called jackie who a girl a woman called jackie who had a uh, she got a cheese shop in cambridge and we wanted to collaborate with her for our local burger and that was our first ever local burger was in cambridge because we were so scared of opening outside london that we were like how can we kind of soften the blow a little bit for the people of cambridge we don't want to be this like ballsy London restaurant um, that so many people do the exact opposite and they come in, you know, peacock it fully and, and like, you know, believe it or not, people don't like that. They much for a bit more of a humble approach. So we went in there, got a local beer on the menu, um, got Jackie to make us this chutney and buy cheese off her. And she was dead against it because I was like, oh, can't she sell like five kilos? And she was like, no way, I can't make it. And she was making her chutney at home. So I got all of our chefs to do all the prep for her and we just give her the ingredients and she would turn into a chutney. We were like, great, now we've got a chutney from Jackie and stuff like that. You know, now it's our manager's job and they go off and they find, you know, um, Hammersmith have just gone off and found an amazing chili sauce that we've put in their local burger. And we had a great local burger there that we came up with and they went off and we're like, we found the sauce, it's even better. Yeah, the GM there, Gardo, really took it on. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, so awesome. stuff yeah. like that is... It, like Phil was saying, the whole we are prepared to make mistakes because we're really gunning for these five out of fives, and, mm. and we're giving Egardo a chance to go off and do his thing, and you know, and his team they can go to work where whatever they want. And yeah, sometimes I walk into a restaurant, I'm like, it's a pretty ropey outfit, but yeah. I don't really care because it's yeah. like no one really cares. You know, we're not inviting people to go. Your chef was wearing a t-shirt that said the wrong word on it. It's like. We don't mind that kind of stuff. We know our customers are generally, you know, their interests are similar to our interests and that's good food and good service and a great feeling. So There are standards and rules. Yeah. And we it's, are it's, serving customers. There's a level of cleanliness and appearance that you need. But what we're trying to say is, like, go out there. And, and I'm with Tom. There's sometimes I've got a real problem with, like, chippy A-boards, you know, when people write stuff like you know, fat people are harder to kidnap so eat cake, come in here and have a cake or something like that, you know, just horrible. And it's like, ugh. And you see it every now and again in our yeah. impressions. And I just have to hold my, hold my that's a little bit and just go, it's all right, it's all right. Is it the same with your social media? Do you let them manage that on a local level as well? No, or? good question. Nah. Topical. Topical. That'd be hard. Yeah. Topical. I think social media, is, I mean, it's Twitter. Dangerous. Twitter is like just a complaints forum nowadays. Mm. No one really uses it. Well, I remember when we first started on Twitter, it was like, it was what Instagram is now. It's a real kind of vocal, friendly place to go and express what you like to eat. And, you know, for me, it was what I was cooking. Now it's just like, just really angsty and people yeah. just getting arsy with other with businesses. Like, people it's, like, you know, like, why TFL has a Twitter account? <laughs> they never, never get it. They were never saying, thanks a lot, TFL. Yeah. I had a great journey God, today. Yeah, it's yeah, just like, I hate you, you've ruined my life. It's like, so many companies yeah. out there and I feel so, the person who was on the other end of that, it's just like a punching bag. Yeah, yeah, uh, there's a great one this morning. Have you seen, uh, there's a chap in America called John Lewis. Have you seen this? I didn't see it till this morning, literally. Oh, was because they launched the Christmas ad yesterday. He's got this guy, and, he, and fair play to him, he's obviously got a sense of humour, and he, he, he replies to people. There was somebody on there saying, 
I don't know, thanks for the uh, you know amazing chocolate cake and, and tagged him in and something like that. He's like, yeah, it's fine. It's an old family recipe. And it was like somebody else was complaining that their umbrella had exploded and they got thrown out of a bar and it was his fault. And I can't remember what his response was. He said, oh, I saved you from a hangover. And genuinely kind of funny. But yeah, it seems every year when the Christmas uh, thing went live, which went live yesterday, that will date this program. Yeah, as, um, yeah so he, he, just he, he, he just gets tagged in everything. But fair play, he's even done his own Christmas advert. It was brilliant. It's worth looking at. Oh, so yeah, some of it still makes me very happy. But we give our guys in the restaurants the um, the opportunity to manage it locally, and uh, because so much of I think what goes on in the restaurant feels like you kind of need to be there, it's very hard to manage that sort of stuff at the head office level because mm. you don't see how busy it is, what's going out. You've had a bit of this yeah. now with our Atlanta sites, I've got to say, and I think it's a conversation where yeah, it's tricky yeah, because actually. I remember one of my uh, one of my managers, bless him, who still works for me, but he put I can't remember what even what the uh, point was behind, but I just remember him putting up a picture, and he'd done it late at night, and it was a picture of Trump and Putin kissing, and I was like, <laughs> I saw it in the morning, and I was like. Oh God, we can't be that political for whatever yeah, point he was making. Yeah, I was like, can we just words. avoid? Can we avoid certain topics? You know, I'm all for lots of banter and stuff like that, but maybe and we can avoid politics. Clear, like, and uh, you know, we talk about burgers, gender. and we should never. No one cares what Honest Burgers thinks about Donald Trump. Yeah, and exactly. No one cares what yeah. Honest Burgers thinks about Brexit. Yeah, people just, care just, what Honest Burgers thinks about burgers. Yeah. So we, we, and this again, Tom, who's credit, sort of ran that sort of business, very adamant. We talk about food. Yeah. We talk about and we, never, we never engaged in in arguments. If someone got really arsy and kicked yeah. off, we just say, All right, sorry, that's that. Yeah. Um, Great. Well, I'll different. send this manager up who did it to your next training session. You can just go through. Just avoid <laughs> avoid politics. We did. Yeah, no, I applaud you for it because that's you. That's that's you going for five, and you got a one that day. But we deleted the tweet. It, it, that's fine. You got a <laughs> one. It's all right. Just yeah, don't don't yeah don't create a rule. Yeah. You'll end up with it's three. True. And we did. I think eventually, after a few more, we did delete his access to social media. <laughs> um, but now yeah. we still take the Mickey Adam for it. And, Good. Uh, well, I love it to bits. So and, just like, yeah, and we have meetings, and we're like, oh, apart from Russell, everybody else, could you mind sort of you know, just helping out? We need to do a bit emotional. <laughs> oh God, I've named him. Hello, Russell. Uh, he'll never listen. Um, right, I'm conscious of time and I've used uh, far more than I said I would, so thank you. But just um, diving quickly into the future. So, you know, what's next? How big does... Um, buy, uh, geez. Oh, we're going to say that out. Getting get tired. Get get although, although I'm going to say that they seem to be on a, on, a, on a downward trend and you're on an upward trend, so yeah. hopefully that gets me uh, out of that. But yeah, honest, <laughs> how far are you going? What's, uh, what's the future? Uh, well, we've got... We've got a few more places in the UK that do not have an honest. Um, not in Bournemouth, you coming down there? You coming yeah, south? Yeah, Bournemouth, maybe one day. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, it's a hard one to answer because it's kind of like we're just going to keep going. Um, we've got, a, you know, we're talking about things that we're investing in. Investing in our people has been something that we we felt a bit. Like we haven't done that. Phil's always looked after customer. I've always looked after food, and we've got this massive um, kind of hole in the middle, which is the, the guys that work for us. Um, and we don't think we've given them enough attention. We've done you know good things like impact on us making our own burgers from scratch, and and you know giving them good ingredients and stuff like that is is a benefit for sure. But we want to be the best employer now. We want people to come to us, and you know really get the kind of support they need in a, in a, in a tough industry, right? It's a very stressful industry. Um, so we want to, we want to kind of grow that side of the business for sure. And, you know, we're sat in a, I think quite embarrassing head office. I want to change that. And, you know, I want to, we want to develop this big, massive, great unit where we can have everything that makes on a special under one roof. So our head office, our prep kitchen, our butchers, 
maybe introduce a plant butchery into there as well because we know that that's you know something that we've embraced fully um in terms of our kind of vegan offering um and yeah just seeing where we can take the word honest because it might not just be burgers okay that's interesting you mentioned plant actually because that was on my radar. You, you've noticed a big change then presumably in the last mm. couple yeah. of years if you're around the plant base yeah look, i mean we don't we don't think it's a bit anecdotal we don't think that we're tapping massively into the vegan market but we're massively tapping into the flexitarian market which you know i've heard people saying upwards of 50 percent of the country could be flexitarian these days so yeah there's that market there um and you know we read the news we're aware of of the some of the pitfalls when it comes to eating meat so we're trying to do our best in terms of making sure our chickens free range we're um looking to increase the welfare on our bacon all of our beef's always been grass-fed um i'm actually meeting with the national farmers union um sort of head on show next week to talk about things we can do to make sure that our beef is the best it can be um and being the best at vegan burgers as well you know we're not in it to serve some crappy sloppy chickpea patty you know we want it to be the best so that means we need to invest no i think it's i think it's fascinating we've, we've been buried in that for a while as well to go back two years and i hated hate no probably about right but the veggies and the vegans that were coming into the restaurant and the constant complaints and uh you know transformed in the last couple of years and now full-on plant-based sections of the menu and a lot of that i think hasn't come off the um necessarily the anarchist kind of vegan movement but much more around the environmental impact and, and recognizing that climate emergency and that we all you know yeah. any of us entrepreneurial people especially your culture in honest and mine sounds similar is if you've got that integrity and you want to do things properly the last thing you want to do is screw the planet over is there but i think we're part of the solution you know it's not an instantaneous change it's a trajectory we've always been very committed to giving all customers you know a decent meal so we've always done gluten-free um now vegan is a big trend and vegetarian is a big trend so we're we're kind of working hard to do that 100 um tom alluded this earlier and uh Almost there, but um, the role changes hugely because now, although you've stepped back slightly, uh, Phil, into a mm. <laughs> uh, into into a more hands-on role. But looking at you know those days when you were out the front and just managing the queue, and now yeah. what you do now with KPIs and all these systems, um, what's the bit of the job now that that gives you the most reward on a day-to-day basis? Why are you still buzzing? Because your enthusiasm still comes across. <laughs> you love it, Will Court. <laughs> Sorry, just, just took out the mic. Um, <laughs> Uh, what do I, I get a kick out of people so I love being around the staff this is why I kind of gravitate towards the hands on role I, I'm, only, I'm covering uh, a regional director role for three months while we bring a new guy in so I'm not you know it's not a permanent move but yeah I'm really enjoying managing area managers again and um, what do I get about I just I like just I like people I like the more restaurants you have, the more people. So, you know, I had these 12 guys yesterday in a room learning what old school hospitality means as a shift manager for Honest and six hours just going full on how I go around sort of three out of five mentality and all this kind of stuff and how we need to behave. So I really get a kick out of that. I love, um, I'm hugely into the people side of the business uh, and I want us to be, like Tom said, I want us to be a great employer. And I think we're good, but we're not industry-leading, whereas mm-hmm. I think we have industry-leading customer metrics. And I think we have an industry-leading business model. We don't have an industry-leading employer brand yet, but we're getting there. We've got some really, really super cool people in the business now driving that. So that I get a buzz out of that every day. I get a kick out of trying to be better. But, you know, for me, I'm on a bit of a rant at the moment because 
just as an industry, we're letting ourselves down and I'm pissed off about it, if I'm honest. We're not good employers as an industry. We expect too many hours for low pay. Um, it's, you know, it's traditionally deemed as low-skilled, which I wildly disagree with. You know, it's, people don't come out of school thinking they're going to be in the restaurant industry. We, we've, we've got to change that, you know, with the headwinds that are coming around Brexit and, you know, plant and vegan and just the challenges that restaurants are facing, which are very real. For me, the only way through is if we've got to just have a big rebrand of our industry. And to do that, the few people have got to stop doing some really shitty stuff and the rest of us have got to wrap our game. Mm. So that really drives me at the moment. I think, you know, Honest is, we're just tapping into what Honest Burgers can be, certainly around the UK and internationally even. And like Tom said, what can we do besides burgers, which is just hugely, hugely exciting. The second track for me that's going at the same time is we need to change this industry a little bit. Yeah, that's really well. Which is, I think, it's not the only reason for the challenge. There's a whole load of history and tradition, and certainly behind the back of house, in the kitchen, the hours that chefs work and stuff like that. But we seem to have gone in the last couple of years with this incredibly, I don't know, margins are super tight, aren't they? Minimum wage increases, pension increases, uh, food cost increases. I don't know. It just feels like the you know the reason we're seeing uh, very public failures of a lot of the casual dining sector. It, yeah, it's it, partly because of that margin, which makes it hard to do. It's the an right equation thing that the team, doesn't doesn't no one's necessarily manage the balance and I understand yeah. why like you said you know we charge 11 pound roughly average spend yeah. so I'd say sorry I think the equation is more about greed though than yeah. than tight margins really I think a lot of those businesses could have done a lot better if they hadn't overstretched themselves yeah, yeah, back to those 60 grand rents included, yeah. you know we started with some really good values and we had great intentions and we did some stuff but you know we, yeah I, I agree with Tom I think in the spirit of what we've been talking about for the last hour and a half, we think honest makes honest great, and that we generally try harder. I think now yeah. is the time for us to try a bit harder. And actually, it's got to be a way of balancing that equation that you just said. Yeah, well, good luck with that because that's tough. Seven hundred and seventy-seven people to uh, to make yeah. happy, and it becomes it does become the most challenging bit. But I think it's um it's a huge privilege to be in a position where you can have a positive impact on people's lives, isn't it? And although you probably see all the things that you don't do and should do better, um, I bet there's a lot of people in there, and you, well, you know there is, who love that culture and love their job. And I'm always amazed by some of the the guys who, you know, who work behind the bar and how much they they still feel that real pride and excitement in looking after the customer. But I share the concern on. Yeah, you know, working too hard and not earning enough cash. Mm, it's hard, stuff, man. So. I think it's important for for we may feel talk for each other quite regularly. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, leading by example is totally um, underused. I think, and it's and it should be. It's a really important thing. And you know, we we've grown personally in this company a lot, and we've had to. Um, but setting the right tone of what you know, what how we live our lives, I think is incredibly important for the, all the people that work for us now. And I hear stories of owners of companies, you know, like phoning up their managers at two in the morning to fucking bollock them and shout at them. And it's like, who the hell do you think they are? And it's like we live in a in a in a challenging environment with high stress on a good day, a bad day. It's like you know can cause. Um, you know mental health problems it can be really really tough so and then you know the the medicine in this industry is generally alcohol and drugs which is you know not going to do you any favors so there's areas that i really want to us to be better at as a company and more supportive um we've started working with an amazing charity called hospitality action that offer um counseling sessions completely confidential you know just a just a phone away or something a bit more serious if if, if it's needed for 
all kinds of addictive problems. Um, so yeah, there's there's tons of stuff we could all be doing better. And like Phil's saying, the industry is getting better, but it's been pretty archaic. If you think about you know the, the chefs of the '90s and what used Usually. to keep them going yeah. and uh, and how they would get through life and. Yeah, there's some questionable practices out there which we don't want to be anything to do with. Mm. We want to be a company that, an industry and a company that you are really proud to say you work for and one that's going to give you skills in life that you take with you and go and do yourself. We've got, I love it when we have people come work for us and we're like, what do you want to do? And they're like, I want to open my own own restaurant. They're like, awesome. (laughs) You know, come, come, I can give you, I'll write the book on what not to do. Absolutely. And explain a few things on, you know, stuff you should focus on. And we've had, you know, we've had quite a few businesses come our way and learn a bit and then got off and set up themselves, which is awesome. Yeah. There is a certain irony, I think, about the fact that we're in the world of hospitality. We're all about making people have a great evening, great night out, great birthday, anniversary party. Yet behind the scenes was this kind of overworked, overgrafted. We don't treat us. Staff in this industry, as well as we, no. with the effort we traditionally treat our customers, yeah, that. that's the yeah. thing that we're that needs to change. Um, Definitely, well, and, you know, people think that they can be. You know, we had one of our managers get punched in the face the other day by some drunk lunatic that came into the yeah. toilet and came out swinging and just, really? you know, so it's, like Tom says, that's a that's a normal day. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of stuff that these guys have to deal with. You know, I, I hope to, that's not a normal. Well, day. that's not normal. <laughs> getting get, get twatted in the mouth is not normal day, but. Yeah, look, generally, I know with type of time, yesterday I finished that session with those managers and I say, look, just throw stuff at me. Just what are you unclear of? Mm. What do you really want to ask? What am I allowed to do? And I've done it maybe 20 times now. And every single group, first question is, what do we do if someone's being really drunk and inappropriate to our staff? Right. Are we allowed to kick them out, Phil? And I'm like, yes, of course you are. And I was just like, just dis- how disappointing is that? Yeah. How disappointing That's is it? The that, you know, I've got, and it was at, at 12, I had 10, 10 girls yesterday, and it's not necessarily about male female, but how sad that these girls are feeling threatened or worried that someone's going to come in, touch them, you know, inappropriately, or say something inappropriate, or be drunk. And it's just shitty. Mm. And yeah, we can't chat. I can't change that, unfortunately. But the same with um, we had a guy on Twitter the day used the C word. Yeah. about one of our managers and I was really? like we responded very kind of politely and I was like nah I'm not okay with that yeah. I don't think you you know we're, we're not going to get into a full blown argument with someone and, I, and we may have done something wrong we didn't do something that merited that no. and then the devil you word followed that and I was like come on man like yeah. we're all human beings exactly. the same. the mistake is made yeah We'll hold our hands up 100%. Yeah, well, I, th- yeah, I think you can normally tell if people respond in that way that whatever happened, and uh, you know, we always have that difficult position, I think, in the industry as you, you sort of know that you need to back and back up your team and that they work for you and, and you've got yeah. to support them whilst always being a little bit conscious of, oh, did, did we do it wrong? But I think as soon as people come back with that kind of language and that mm-hmm. kind of wording, you go, okay, you're, you're actually probably not you know, the sort of person, person that we want in the venue anyway. Which is what you do. You know, um, we, we put ourselves well and truly in the public domain. Yeah. So you're going to get some people that uh definitely dubious definitely. their intentions yeah, <laughs> so you know it happens yeah. but 
Yeah, that's, that's, I agree with Phil. You know, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough one to crack, but it's one we're we're really committed to. Yeah. Well, I think it's exciting that with all the stuff you've got going on and all the opportunities that you've got, you know, the fact that 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 is your you know kind of next priority and that's the thing you're working on, and and hearing about the the authenticity, as I've said, and the integrity of everything else that you've focused on over the last few years, I'm sure you will nail that one. I'm going to uh, keep in touch because that's such a great thing to um to try and yeah, get right. So. We've got a head of hugs, um, in our. Uh, company whose role is predominantly to run our hug club We're talking about touching people um, and hugging Very people and, head, of uh, hugs. head of hugs that's his job that's your full time job he's a big bearded guy wow. big big arms he's got and, an ambassador uh, of hugs right there <laughs> yeah and he's a good guy but I, I always say look, you know probably 70% of his focus is on is on the customer it's about the loyalty team and looking after all of those people but 30% is is the team it's kind of hugging the team it's looking for opportunities to really go out of the way to, to recognise when people have done great things because there's no point putting all of that effort on work Work into looking after the customer and forgetting that you know the people behind the scenes are the ones this this podcast is called the humans of hospitality for that reason you know the yeah, human yeah. beings are what exactly, animate man. it bring it to life otherwise it's it's dull and tedious and, and so. people just have shit days yeah you know? exactly. you have everyone everyone yeah. you know to an extent copes with life and something's yeah. Will blindside you, and you've got to get up and go Definitely, to work the next yeah. day, but and, was, and yeah. put a smile on your face. It's yeah, hard, but but humans first, business second. I say the same to my team. How yeah. we manage each other. I was chatting to a chef just a couple of days ago who'd, who'd been a little bit too blunt with one of the team, and I was like, look, it's not that what you're saying is necessarily wrong, but you've got to be a human first. The yeah. business case is that person needed to be dealt with that way, but the human case is is, is different. Yeah, just it. just be yeah, uh, we all need just to deal with them differently. So so I think it's it. happening, and other people I chat to in the, in the sector, I think it's happening. More like you, man, <laughs> and you guys. So so hats off to you. Um, where should people go? So to follow the story, if they want to join in, um, yeah, where's the best place to go? Website, social channel, anyone particularly good? Well, Tom? I would say go to an Honest Burger and ask. <laughs> yeah, ask <laughs> what's your personal ask burger? A, ask a human being. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've got all of our, you know, it's Honest Burgers um, for all of our handles, some with no space, some without space. But yeah, Instagram, we've got a few low stories on there. Website's pretty good these days. Um, but yeah, we do, we like to do the talking with human beings. So if you go Perfect. to, you probably go to a restaurant and ask a load of questions and get stony <laughs> face. Hopefully, you know, if we've done our job um, half well, then yeah, you should be able to get some, some nice answers or just, you know, send an email, get in touch with us. We're more than happy to Amazing. sit down and, uh, and chat. Good. Well, look, thank you again. You've, you've been very generous with your time. It's hugely appreciated. Good luck with what comes next. And uh, you're going to Brighton. Uh, good luck with your afternoon. Brighton. And, um, yeah. yeah, get on your bike. Thank you very much. Cheers, Thanks, guys. Cheers. Right, much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics. So you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday